Hey, I'm Gary David. And I'm Adam Gamwell. Welcome to Experience by Design, the podcast where we explore, you guessed it, experience design of all kinds. That's right. And many of you out there listening right now might have heard this expression, curiosity killed the cat. I know, poor kitty. But with all stories, the reality of this statement is a bit more complicated than we have originally been led to believe. It turns out that the initial version of that phrase referred to how excessive worry or concern for others actually killed the cat. And that's a concept we all can relate to. Although for you cat owners, you might find it hard to believe your cat's worrying about you, but let me assure you, (laughs) it is. Curiosity, on the other hand, did not necessarily cause harm to the cat and may in fact improve its life. And again, for you cat owners, when you've seen your cat knock something off a shelf out of spite or maybe even curiosity, the object might've been harmed, but the cat was not. Hmm. And after all, curiosity is one of those things that we see throughout human development. We see it in babies as they explore their environments. We see it in children when they go off to school. Kind of peters off a little bit with college students, but hopefully, Anybody who's exploring a new environment, curiosity is something that's driving them to do that exploration and find new things. So the question becomes, where does curiosity go in our lives? It does seem, maybe I'm speaking for myself here, but as we get older, or maybe more settled, or maybe more busy and more preoccupied, curiosity starts to feel more like an obligation than an opportunity. And when curiosity becomes an obligation, it starts to wither on the vine and die. Mm. So we might think about how do we invigorate that sense of curiosity in our lives and ourselves? How can we integrate curiosity to make it once again part of who we are, to find that childlike wonder in the world where we want to seek, explore, understand, and discover? And how can we have curiosity with care and intentionality, where that curiosity is aimed at a positive end that we are directing in our lives? This is some legit questions that I think are, are important. And that's why I'm excited that today on Experience by Design, we have two amazing guests that will help us dive into this exact area. We're going to be hearing from Monica Canfield-Lenfest and Pim Hacksable from Architecting Curiosity. Now, this duo describes their company as a community and a school to practice and train your natural muscle of inquiry. So, you know, as Gary pointed out, that if we kind of find ourselves not being as curious in different parts of life, that might mean that, you know, we, we can atrophy a muscle in the same way that if we don't work out our arms or legs, we might lose some muscle in that space. Mm-hmm. Now, what's interesting is that curiosity is part of our natural selves. Our guests help us understand that it's central to the kind of work that they're doing. And this is how they work with clients and to kind of tap back into an exercise that we might say. After all, we don't want to atrophy those muscles. And the good news is that architecting curiosity are kind of like curiosity therapists. They work with people who want to reinvigorate their inquisitive self. So you might think about this episode as a little bit of curiosity therapy that Gary and I went through. That's right, for free. For free, yep. And we're going to share it with you. Um, and so in this, we're going to be talking with Pim and Monica about their work and how it started. And we discussed the huh moment. Huh. We're all going to pause and go, huh. huh. I encourage you to do the same too. So we discussed this huh 
moment. When that first noticing becomes a pathway to exploring new worlds, then they'll take us through their framework to guide clients back to curiosity and to discovery. And ultimately, their work is really about helping people go beyond those limitations that they've created for themselves, freeing their minds to explore and discover. And crucially, we also learn what is served at parties in the Netherlands. Huh. 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 Interesting. Well, it was a great conversation. We really enjoyed having them on and we hope you enjoy the chat. By the way, how did you, how did both of you meet um, and to, to, to engage in this architecting curiosity kind of endeavor? Because you're in different parts of the world, no? And yet here you are engaged in this kind of audacious, auspicious undertaking. Yeah, we're currently in this new country called Zoom. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if it's officially a country yet, but it definitely is a place where a lot of people gather. Uh, so, so I hope we get some uh, some rules of engagement. Um, but I think we, we both met in California because uh, I spent two years there during the COVID pandemic. Um, isn't that right, Monica? Yeah, and it's interesting. We spent a lot of time in Zoom together for the first uh, six months of working together. We had not met in person, even though Pim was in Berkeley and I was here where I still am, a few hours south of the San Francisco Bay Area. And um, we finally had a chance to meet in person. Uh, just before Pim moved back to the Netherlands. Uh, so we got two days together with our collaborator, Anthony Rocco, uh, who is actually the connection between the two of us. We, mm. we both knew him before we started working together as a trio. And Pim and Anthony had been working together before I joined the group. That's okay. Adam and I are probably like, you know, 15 miles apart, but we had to travel to Salt Lake City to see each other. I mean, this is, we're very used to work over Zoom. The only difference now is the time zones. So usually we had both morning uh, people in the Zoom room and now there's like sleepy pin and morning pin. Sleepy pin and morning pin. Yeah. And I joke that, you know, as I get it on Zoom, we'll we'll often do calls around 8 a.m. Pacific time. And which is what five PM, yes, Pim's time in the Netherlands, Central European time. And I joke that as Pim is getting sleepier, he's losing energy, and I'm gaining the energy that he's losing <laughs> during our call. So I get more awake, and he gets sleepier as we're talking. <laughs> it's a fun challenge. Well, it makes me, given the kind of work that y'all do, and this is, you know, there's all this work, all this discussion right now about work from home versus being in the office. And you got to be in the office to be creative versus, you know, no, we can do creativity, you know, online, virtually, asynchronously or synchronously in the work that you do in trying to architect curiosity. I mean, how, how do you tackle that? How do you, you know, where do you, where are your thoughts on that as this, as this is kind of like the hot button issue for people trying to, not just collaborate, but create over distance. I mean, this is, this is, yeah, this is a hot topic. Um, Let me, let me say just, if you want to 
If you want to be creative, like have this sort of like moment of sparks, then being in the room together is nothing like being over Zoom. Um, but I think that we do achieve a lot of quality and creative energy in the times that we work together. Um, and as we just joked about Sleepy Pim, I think the the first thing I would say is sort of like recognizing just, you know, time zones, energies where you're at. Uh, so you don't have to pretend. Um, I think that's a, that's an important thing to sort of be aware of, of like, Oh, there's maybe a dog barking or there's, there's kids in your house. Um, you know, all, the, all those elements uh, that might take energy to be in a zoom just to recognize what is And then, of course, we have a lot of fun puzzles. I wouldn't say puzzles. We have a lot of fun games that we play with each other uh, to keep the energy high. Mm -hmm. Meeting with each other. Yeah. Yeah. We have some. We have some rituals that we that we use in order to uh, drop in together. I think. Uh, I think one of the key ways to use to use virtual connection as like a a container as its own container, right? Like Pim was just joking that Zoom could be its own country. Uh, I think recognizing that virtual culture is different than meeting in person and that there are certain constraints and also certain opportunities that you can do that you can really play with when you're in a virtual space with other people and really treating it as a space that you're in together that has its own parameters. Um, and so I think we have really taken the opportunity to play with those, those parameters in both in our work with each other and then also in our classes that we've taught online with, our, with people who are interested in deepening their curious mindset. So the idea of like not seeing these things as limitations, but opportunities. And it was, it was, I was just reading, I don't know if you're familiar with the, the person, Saul Alinsky, who was a famous community organizer in the you know, 1900s, died in 1972, I think. But anyway, I was just reading over some of his material. And one of the things he talks about quite a bit is that, you know, especially in organizing people for a social action, there needs to be an element of fun there. And if it's not fun, if it's not playful, if it's not satirical, if it's not humorous, then it's going to become onerous and not engaging and not enjoyable and people aren't going to want to participate. And it seems, you know, as, as I was reading that and thinking about talking with you all, it seems that this is a fundamental thing that drives a lot of your work is the, you know, this idea of curiosity, creativity, and playfulness as fundamental elements of getting people to open up with themselves and then as a pathway to open up with others as well. I would say absolutely. And I think that also relates to the physical space. So if I'm curious about, well, what is different in a zoom space or a digital space? Um, well, I'm like, okay, wait, maybe time is going a little bit slower mm -hmm. because I'm, I'm unable to read the cues maybe that we have as, you know, I can just only see the faces. So I'm mm -hmm. trying to read the room, but reading the room is more difficult over Zoom. Um, so recognizing that meetings might take longer uh, if you take this a similar meeting to the physical space. So just being aware of things might go slower. 
However, some things might go faster because we have amazing technology and we could suddenly be with 50 people in a room and on a Miro board and then have a creative brainstorm that in a physical space would be less possible or less fast and efficient. So really thinking about what are the opportunities here uh, and taking the benefit of those, but also thinking about, well, what are what are things that might be different and recognizing that and also taking, uh, for example, a little bit more time to connect and ground, which is one of the things that um, as a trio, we always take at least five to 15 minutes to ground. Uh, this could be a check-in. Uh, this could be some of us brings a story. So we we might have found like a video that we thought was inspirational or there is a book we read and we, we read a poem or something like that, um, which then goes to sort of the the playfulness and the, the, the inspiration. Because uh, there's a lot of things that I'm just seeing throughout the day that I might find inspiring, but because we're not physically there together, I just need to take a little bit of extra effort uh, to bring it in the beginning of the meeting. Um, so those are little rituals that we try to do uh, to make it more intentional. That's and interesting. I think it, I was, oh, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that um, I think that taking that time is so uh, is so unique in a Zoom space because you know people, especially when people join our follow your curiosity class, they often say, "Wow, this is such a different Zoom experience than every other Zoom call I've been on this week." And part of that is that part that real intention of slowing down and setting a group culture of these are the these are the guidelines this is what we're agreeing to do with this is the container that we're in together where so many other virtual meetings because you know we know oh you have so many other meetings oh we want to be mindful of time we want to go quickly we need to start and end and do all of the things it doesn't allow people to get that human connection that you kind of get automatically in person. But if we can invite that into our virtual space together, then it feels really transformative and, and unique to the virtual space. Yeah. And then maybe the, to debunk this idea of like, Oh, well, if we slow down, then do we have time to be productive? Right. Um, and I think actually when we slow down, we have the ability to rise up and be more productive. Um, and I, I take lessons from, I used to be, uh, or I take lessons from the sports. I used to be a rower where, you know, you have the moment that you put the effort, uh, you make the stroke, but then as important is the rest you take before the other stroke. Um, to have another powerful stroke. So there is a lot of training in how to rest best between the strokes. Um, and there's a sort of relaxation. And I see that sort of like taking the time uh, to connect to eventually then work very productively together. I really like that idea. And it's interesting that... And I think the, some of the important stuff that I'm taking away here is this notion that productivity is so often, on one level, why Zoom meetings exist, right? Because we can't get together in person, therefore we have to make sure we're meeting. Um, and 
at some point we decided that talking on a phone wasn't enough, which is an audio connection. And so it's interesting even to think about this too, because you know there's a ton of research out there that you know Zoom fatigue is a real thing, right? Because we spend more time on video meetings than just audio, and 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 in that, you know, besides looking at yourself all the time in a Zoom call, right? Um, there's just a little bit more work because because you know you're 100 right. Um, PMO, we're seeing this this idea that it's harder to read the room, right? When you're in a Zoom space, it's virtual. I can't I can't physically kind of understand how big any of us are, how how close or far away we are. Um, you get facial expressions, kind of, right? But you miss you miss a bunch of other stuff, and like you're really getting like, like there's a very small part of each of our bodies we can even see. So, you, am I leaning forward? Am I leaning back? Are my arms crossed? But we don't know, <laughs> you know. Um, and so it's interesting. Like all these things contribute to this idea of of fatigue online. And so it's it's like duly important. It seems to pay attention to how do we set that intentional human space when we're meeting online, because there's actually a lot more work we have to do to kind of be on, right? Um, and to be in that space with each other. And it's confusing and weird because we're not sharing that space in the same way. So I think that that's really interesting. And it also just reminds me of the, you know, the the dumb but true metaphor of like the water cooler conversations you could have when you actually ask somebody in the hallway, right? And that's when you actually can talk about that rowing thing you learned. I read this book this week and I want to tell you about it when it may have not been appropriate, you know, in a, in a board meeting or something. But it's interesting to see how those come together, though, and that we actually have to have that human space, um, even more so intentionally. I think in the when we're in a virtual setting like this, um, and I love this idea, Monica, you mentioned in terms of that you get feedback from participants from your class that they're they're, they're like this is such a different form of experience than I've had in a virtual space like this. Um, I'm curious, like thinking about this in terms of the, the classes that that y'all run. Um, do all classes kind of begin with this grounding space? It sounds like you do this both for your meetings with each other and for classes, which is which is pretty cool. So now I'm like, I'm gonna take this back to, to different offices too. Gary, we should have a we should have a, a play session before we start every day. Right. Because <laughs> we're both so fun. I like this idea. Yeah. It's because we're both so fun. Yeah. Um, but I, I'm curious how this, how this kind of happens in your classes. Like, is this this is something that you do every single class and does do the rituals evolve? Do they change or kind of how do you how do you see what works over time? Yeah, we do them in each class um, and it becomes a part of the ritual of the opening, right? And so people know to expect it. We vary it maybe a little bit each class as people co- go through the four, the four week follow your curiosity course. Uh, we might ask different people to, to read the grounding or to do different pieces of it, to mix it up a little bit, but it does become a part of that ritual, uh, ritual opening of the space that we are in together. And I think the beauty of that is it really sets the tone for people to connect vulnerably and um, honestly, authentically with people that they don't know. And, you know, we've been talking in our conversation about, the constraints of Zoom, right? And how we work with them. But one of the one of the amazing benefits with Zoom, which we are all experiencing right now, is that you can have live conversations with people all over the world in the yeah. same virtual space. And we've gotten to benefit from that so much with our course, where there'll be people from all over the world that are joining. And because we're able to set the container that the way that we get to be together in this space is authentic, is open. Here's some here's some basic ground rules to ensure that 
it really allows people to connect in a deeper way with people that they otherwise wouldn't even probably meet in their entire lives, which is a really sweet gift that yeah. people get from the course. Yeah, maybe. Oh, sorry. No, you uh, maybe one thing to, you know, if, if you, if you work somewhere, there is a, a specific culture. Uh, and when you work somewhere longer, you like get to know this culture. But as we just mentioned, like Zoom is a space that we meet different cultures. So what is the Zoom culture whenever you're with different people and, and everyone has learned different ways of being online? Um, so we use that as a, a trick to be like, well, this is you're, you're now joining this curious pocket universe, the curious culture, right. here are some of the ground rules. Um, and in the first lesson, we kind of explain or we, we share the, the invitations. But then because often in Zoom, uh, I, don't, I don't know if any of you experienced this, um, the, the first five minutes sort of sets the tone. So often we can be uh, disengaged or very engaged. So immediately in our second class, we ask all participants to share the meeting agreements. So they go uh, one by one to, to sort of like share the different rules of engagement, um, which immediately sets this tone of like, oh, I have to be active in this class rather than just someone talking to me. So there's this sort of um, experience design principles to set a culture in a Zoom room, but also uh, to announce sort of how much you are going to engage in this uh, space. And then because we're over Zoom, we spend so many time zones. Um, the questions we ask are, are relatively uh, common or like simple, but because everyone comes from such different perspectives, uh, all the answers are so different. So there's all these perspectives shared in the room. And I think that's really what makes people even more curious of like, oh, you know, I, I realize that I'm in my own uh, little bubble, uh, but just being here and hearing all these people share their answers uh, makes me realize just my own perspective a little bit more. I'm, I'm approaching this thought from probably an American or a male American cultural perspective. And I know you work with people from all around the world. You're all around the world in, in your organization. And how, number one, I guess, I wonder, do you find people from different parts of the world or people from different backgrounds have an easier time embracing this? And I also was thinking about the, the idiom curiosity killed the cat and what an interesting phrase that is, right? It's like this warning against being, um, you know, curious and exploring new things and you know, how, how, what damage that does, right. You know, that culturally speaking, and this could be even business culture, there can be a real hesitancy to being um, inquisitive or curious or exploring and do you find different struggles working with different professions, working with different nationalities, different genders, different age groups, in how they're able to embrace this call to action of curiosity? Um, or is there other more barriers that you have to work harder to overcome? Well, I think that the people that join our course are self-selecting to start, right? So the invitation to participate in an architecting curiosity course um it's you know sort of requires a certain level of curiosity to begin with um i 
it's been interesting though to see the impact that the course has had with people who you know we just finished uh we just finished a cohort a couple of weeks ago and there was someone who uh, was an older retiree in in their 70s and they were saying you know all these concepts were really familiar to me but i never had experienced them in this way mm-hmm. and i'm thinking about things differently and seeing the way that staying curious is actually incredibly important for for the aging process and for staying engaged in life, like in this, in this retired stage of life. Whereas on the other side of things, there was someone who had just graduated from, from undergraduate university and is in this moment of exploration and trying to make sense of the world. And the, some of the concepts were seemed to be brand new to them, but they were also so inspired by getting to hear from people from all these different places about their own experiences and knowing that they weren't alone in the ways that they were experiencing some aspects of, of life. And so there's a whole range. Yeah. And maybe when you, um, you know, besides the self-selecting, everyone is there to explore the same thing. Um, and in and in this case, it's curiosity, but it could have also been um, some other random subject where if you want to engage in something and you want to like learn more or even train, uh, you want to be with uh, like minded or like interested uh, people to to train it over time or to apprentice this um, to eventually then go into you know, whatever surroundings you are yourselves, this could be work, personal, uh, private life, um, to train that muscle and then be able to sort of like, uh, maybe face some of the resistance that is also out there for, uh, for curiosity. And I think going back to that phrase of curiosity killed the cat and, um, you know, I don't have the truth, uh, in my hands, but I also, have read that there is, you know, there is a mistranslation of curiosity and that it's actually like care killed the cat. It was, Um, I was just looking it up. It was originally care killed the cat, which meant like worry or concern for others, which isn't necessarily better. It's like, yeah, worrying for others, you know, (laughs) killed the cat. I'm like, that's not good either. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So there, I mean, maybe, yeah, curiosity could be, could have been misquoted, um, but it's also, if you look at back in the sort of the roots of the word, um, besides curious mindset, it also means uh, some way or form of caring. Um, so the way we look at that is um, just not being mindlessly curious and trying to get new information, but also take a bit of care. Uh, you know, when I'm when I'm trying to inquire about you or when I'm interested in your perspective, I also do that with a certain care. Um, and maybe I approach it carefully. Um, so we see sort of the, the both being curious as an exploration, but also as something to take care with. So I really like that idea um, and that curiosity in the same way with, with attention almost can be undirected and directed, right? That like it requires paying attention. Um, it requires it's in, the, in the active sense, right? So it's, it's not just to be curious, but it's, it's to, I don't know, to be like curious, if I can make a word up, <laughs> right? <laughs> and like adding a level of, of care there. I think one thing else is interesting, you know, kind of perusing the architecting curiosity 
website and, and thinking through some of the, the ways that you are facing the public or your potential students um, and cohorts. You know, it's interesting that you like the two main pieces are ones around the research that you've done to figure out and kind of come up with the methodology and the really, really interesting set of you know, ritual interviews or interview rituals and the principles that you they use to kind of guide the program. And so um, I want to dive into both those those columns and kind of get a sense of, of um, how you kind of settled on this idea of re- interviewing a bunch of really interesting people to, to, to frame up how to do the work. Um, and then and one of the pieces that comes up from that is, is that, you know, there's a mention of the value of like embodied experiential learning. And so this, this is what got my brain springboarding off for the notion that you said that like there's element of care to the kind of curiosity that we're talking about. And, uh, you know, when I think about the idea of, of care, it's, it can be both, you know, taking care of, of someone else or of, of oneself. Right. And so, um, the amount of embodiedness, I'm really interested in this space too, because like care to me is like a heart thing, um, that's in the body. And, and I mean, it can be a mind thing too, of course, but, um, anyway, so this is like a, a circular question to get a sense in terms of when we think about care and curiosity, you know, how did these filter into, or did they come out of kind of the interview process that you, that you did to kind of set up the, the framework itself, you know, and, or shape your principles, like, um, what's, what's happening in that space in terms of like, why are these the two things, the principles and the interviews, the things that we want to show potential folks that want to take the, take the courses. You want to take this, Monica? Um, well, maybe you could speak a little bit more to the in, to the interview um, part of it, Pam, since you were involved in that more than I was. Um, but I I will say that the 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 care piece is is a really powerful way to reframe curiosity. And I think, you know, pointing back to that curiosity killed the cat story, we all have these stories that we can point to, to say what we've learned, to see what we've learned about curiosity in our lives, whether that curiosity is a good thing, curiosity is a bad thing, or you need to be careful about how you're curious or you know maybe you shouldn't be curious about certain things um and really the embodied principles that we work with are an invitation to reconnect with that innate curiosity right like we're all born curious actually humans all humans are curious all all culture grew out of curiosity you know like every innovation that humans have ever ever created has been born out of curiosity and so it's it's not a new thing that that is outside of us that we need to reach for it's really a way of reconnecting to that inner curious version of ourselves and that's where the principles really come in is because they are simple enough and flexible enough to apply to all of these different areas of one's life and that there that allows this deepening of curious engagement in in your life and to both in to both engage with these bigger questions of the unknown and the mystery of life, the uncertainty that we all face in so many areas of our lives when we think to the future. Uh, And then also in finding more 
of a spark in the mundane details of our lives, right? right? Can we, can we approach, can we approach our morning tea with a little bit of exploration and um, practice observing or suspending, which are two of the, the key principles uh, as we engage in our day to day. So it sort of can go, it's, it's such a flexible container that we're able to embrace in our own lives to both approach really big questions and also approach really small mundane aspects of our lives. Just really quick, it reminds me like you watch a horror movie and you see like that person going into the dark room. You're like, no, don't, 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 don't do that. That's, that's not, you shouldn't be curious about that. Oh, yeah. You should go, you should go the other way. You know, like, why are you, why are you playing with the Ouija board? That's not, that's not a good idea at all. That's, that's, that's bad curiosity. It's not curiosity exactly. care versus, um, you know, the person who actually goes in the car and starts it and drives away. That's, that, that's better or looks for the keys versus goes in the dark room. Right. And how many of those stories of how many of those like horror stories prevent us from being curious? Right. It's like, oh, well, I don't want to go in the dark room. I don't I don't want to go for a walk in the woods alone because what might happen, it really prevents our own desire to explore. I'm just going to stay home. (laughs) <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Stay safe. Stay yeah. safe. Yeah, and maybe to speak to the um the interviews and sort of the the exploration of what is embodied curiosity um is and and maybe this is a similar timeless thing that is something all humans or most humans experience is love. Right? I can I can definitely explain what happens in your body and maybe in your brain in terms of chemicals when you are in love. Right. But is that similar to when you are actually in love and you are just on a pink uh, cloud? Um, there's something else happens, right? And and the, we all remember maybe the first moment we were in love, um, and and that's also the moment we can start have a different conversation about love. And the older we get, we have like more and more embodied experience around love. So, you know, there's, there's a ton of research out there. What actually happens when we're curious and there's models about different ways of being curious, but what is the feeling of curiosity? Like, what does it feel like in a Zoom room to explore together? Because curiosity is, is both something you can do by yourself, but we can also do it with the four of us. Like, how does how does it even feel? And, and are there ways that we can uh, trick our body to be more curious also in a physical sense? And maybe to give you an example is um, we often say that the sound of curiosity is, huh? Right. I don't know if you if you want to try this with us, but just as with the four of us, just say "huh" a couple of times. Huh. 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 I actually talk quite a bit about that in my ethnography class, is that you know you've made a discovery that's of note worthy of exploring when someone goes, you say, you say an observation and someone goes, huh. I'm like, when that huh happens, mark it 
and go into it because now you've revealed something mm-hmm. to people that they, after you say it, they recognize but never notice themselves. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Right. I love and that. You know, and you know, Pim, it's, I know you have a background in game design and it's made me think. I'm playing this video game right now. I don't know if you've played it. Um, Assassin's Creed Valhalla. Okay, which is this open world exploration game. And as you were talking, and as I was thinking about it, because I'm like 70 hours into this thing, um, there's, you know, there's an element of open world gaming that I think people who are curious like, which is the exploration of the unknown Mm. versus other kinds of video games, which are very linear and directed, which take you on this path, which is point A to point B that you have to go through versus you get to construct and create um, a path of your own choosing, almost like a choose your own adventure kind of thing. If you remember those books and so, you know, it's not so much a question, but just, you made me go, huh, made me think about, well, you know, this, the ways in which games are designed as safe spaces in which curiosity can be exercised and tapped into. And then can we then use that as a jumping off point to give people permission to be curious in other real life ways. No, I think that you're you're on point uh, because the one thing in a game is it's safe. And, you know, we, we still might feel um, some different emotions throughout the games and it can still be scary, but we're no, we're safe. We're, we know we're safe. So it's safe to explore. And and what are the things that makes us or make that what are the things that make us feel unsafe that we might can take away or we could might change so that we can explore uh, differently. And it reminded me of a, a friend who uh, teaches a class in architecture school. Um, and in first class, she goes, well, everyone who joins the class and is here and is, you know, engaged will pass with a grade of an eight. Um, and from there we can explore. So to take away that fear of passing oh, the class right. Interesting. Um, and just exploring whatever is possible, um, but also setting a sort of a, you know, a norm of like, if you're, if you just show up, um, then there's this space to explore. So that's that's an example um, of someone that I know that uses that as a as a way to create that exploration. But I, I can imagine there's there's many different ways to do so. And also, I think Monica, you wanted to to jump in. Oh yeah, the, I think what we're talking about here of that invitation in to the exploration. We in architecting curiosity sometimes refer to that as the field where, you know, you're like stepping into the field, that huh moment that where you, it piques your curiosity and you want to see more. And, and one thing that we really play with is how can we, how can we maintain that field in different containers? How can we continue that um, sort of infinite play of the field as we continue to go into our own lives or are in and out of a zoom room with each other um, or take that back to our own daily lives. You know, the follow your curiosity course, we've talked a lot about the zoom live zoom component of it, but we also have uh, a homework app that people get that gives them daily prompts. Uh, 
based on the principles about ways that they can engage in their own lives, just sort of simple ways to try on the principles on their own. Uh, and then they have this container that they can return to. So how do we continue to step into the field or invite people into the field in ways that fit in different parts of their lives? Yeah, and maybe... No, go, go, Adam. Um, I was just gonna no, I think that like that's that's such an important part of like thinking through curriculum design and, and even the classroom, you know, learning experience together too, in terms of it's one thing to kind of deliver knowledge, right? And then it's another to say, how do you take that and then build something or kind of I mean we might say embody it, right? How do how do you kind of digest mm -hmm. it and download it? Um so it's interesting to think about this too in terms of exercises that you provide. Um, as ways that folks can try to find, I like the metaphor of like putting it in different kind of containers in their lives. Um, and the container seems like it acts a bit like that safe space where it's like, this is how you can think about it. You know, you can, you can perhaps expand the container um, as you get more I don't know, muscle memory or robustness or bravery, whatever, whatever comes with it in terms of like playing with curiosity. Um, but it's, it's nice. I mean, so it's, it's almost like also, you know, to, to have our game example there too, it's like to keep expanding where the game can be played. Um, so it can come into other parts of your life too. So it's like, I don't know, NFTing your <laughs> your everyday life. If you want to play the game on your console, then you can take it out and go play on an app later or something. But um, I think that's, that's a really nice idea too, to think about that. It, it's, it's like delivered and shared in one area. And then how do we then take it and bring it elsewhere too? So, I mean, it's, I mean, it's a curriculum design question since forever. Right. Um, but this is a nice, a nice thing to think about in terms of um, what kinds of activities and, and exercises work for folks, like to be able to feel safe and to, to play with, curiosity um, going forward. So anyway, just, just a thought. Yeah. And Adam, we, we, we've really been, we've really been sitting with that question uh, over the last uh, six months, maybe a little bit longer uh, in, in terms of a new offering that we've been developing um, that maybe Penn, you can, you can speak to a little bit more, um, which is more of an asynchronous masterclass that um because you know we are only three people <laughs> there's only so many times we can teach this course in a year and we really wanted to develop a an offering that people could access more in a more on-demand format and get an introduction to the principles and to the ways that we're thinking about architecting curiosity uh, so that they can begin to work with these work with these principles in their own lives and, and really, really step into the, really step into the curiosity field as we, as we talk about that. Yeah. I, think, I don't um, know if you want to, yeah. yeah. Well, what, what you're sparking is the thing that I, um, I think that if we can, be more curious as a society or as a world society or in, in, in even in, in a classroom, um, the world would look very differently. I think um, we would have less divide, uh, maybe have more sort of embodied human connection, um, similar to a way that I sometimes ask, what would the world look like if we all had a good night's rest? So what would the world look like if we all are just like a couple percentages more curious? Because we really don't have to be curious all the time. We also need a rest, but just a little like, and I'm very excited for that future. And 
I really want more people to, you know, touch upon curiosity and, and, and take the principles and make it their own and, you know, shape and form them whatever way works. Um, and this is, this is what we're trying to create more offers that is like, you know, even shorter to take, uh, but also, you know, uh, the, the, um, what is it like a, a Google doc that people can take and teach themselves in classrooms. So really to create this sort of community of people that also believe a more curious world um, is going to benefit in so many ways. Um, so I think that that's what we're trying to do. Um, I think yeah. it also makes me think about um, going back to curiosity with care, because you can be curious in a destructive way. Um, where people are curious, they're driven by curiosity, but for ends that aren't, uh, don't embody care and what I might consider, we might consider positive social impact. And it just makes me think as, you know, in our grad program in experience design, you know, we've been more conscious or trying to be about design justice and design ethics as a fundamental feature of our teachings and conversations. And so rather than just being curious of whether a red color or blue color button results in more sales, right, for a company, but, you know, are we considering what the person needs, what their needs are, what's best for them? And do we ask them what's best for them? Again, going back to the Sololinsky stuff, you know, he was always very careful to say that it's not, you know, I don't, I'm not trying to organize communities what I think they need. I'm trying to help them organize around what they say they want. And what matters to them. And so just trying to figure out how we can bring in curiosity with care. Maybe it's like a new uh, a new brand tagline for the uh, curiosity, curiosity with care. Or in order to avoid this, we're curious about what how we can change behavior, not for positive ends, but for maybe personal ends, which aren't best for the the people who are being targeted. And, and and I think that, you know, um, over time, maybe definition of what is good and bad might change. Right. And over time or over cultures, uh, you know, what is good and bad might differ. Right. Um, so what what is that curiosity with care where we go beyond the label of good and bad? Right. Um, it's tricky, right? I mean, it's, it's a big conversation for sure. Yeah, that's that's sort of the the unknown, um, and yeah, sitting with that sort of like, oh, what does what does it even mean to go beyond that good and bad? Um, huh? 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 I'm I'm curious. Do you? I mean, are there are there exercises that you do to do that? Like, I mean, it's making me think of more frequently I'm just going to also reference games here like there's more frequently you'll find video games with moral dilemmas built into them like so there's not really a necessarily a great choice there like there's a trade-off um that's one thing that makes me think of that but I'm curious are there other kind of techniques you all play with in that regard of like how do we destabilize like the black and white I guess this is good that's bad um, or something like that well I think one of the ways that we we, we th have been thinking about it is really this concept of beyond certainty, right? Is there's this promise 
there's this promise of certainty that if we are certain what's good and what's bad or what, what uh, decision is going to lead to the best outcome, then we can take that, make that decision and everything will be fine. Um, but I think that we have all seen, especially in the last few years with so much destabilization of our lives and so much uncertainty that it's not clear. And so we've, we've really, and especially in the new offering that we've been developing, developing, we really embrace this idea of curiosity as a compass to navigate that uncertainty to rather than seeking out certainty and the certain, the certainty as what the answer should be really helping people to engage with that curious curiosity of care and the way that they ask questions and sort of explore what could be possible. And I think the principles themselves really point point to that and um i don't know if this would be a maybe this is a, a good time to sort of walk through those as mm -hmm. part of the curriculum design i don't know pim if you do you want to take that piece i can take the first two um okay. and and i think that's something we've been doing mostly during our conversation is sort of observing you know what is what is here? What is in this Zoom room? Um, what technology are we using? Um, you know, what what is the word? What does it mean? Like, uh, what sound does it make? So really, the first step into being more curious is trying to observe in all its many ways and forms. Uh, this could be sight, sound, uh, but there's so many more organs that we have that we can sort of like, <laughs> we, we know, you know, um, whether or not we're in balance or... Um, we know what temperature um, our body sort of has, what's what's warm and cold. Um, and then the, the second principle is suspending. And this is temporarily being open to the possibility of something new. And the importance that I always try to address here is the temporarily. Um, because, you know, in a game, as we talked about, um, you know, you know that it's you're in this space and it's temporarily there. But once you're out, then you're safe, right? Because you're always in a safe space. But also in a theater, you know that the theater is uh, fake, even though we still emotionally connect to it. But we allow ourselves to go that way because we know that the theater piece will end. So if we think about the, the question of like, what is good or bad, um, you could have an opinion, but we can suspend for a moment uh, the other other side and see what's there to discover. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if there's nothing to discover, we just we just go back to um, our old ways or the, our own views. And that's kind of the safety uh, of suspending. But we maybe discover something new, um, which is also fine, but just the spending really allows us to uh, open up in a sort of safe container. And from there, we go to Monica. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, so suspending really lays the groundwork for the next principle, which is apprenticing, really approaching new experience with a beginner's mind. Um, and really being open to being a beginner, right? Trying something new, trying a new approach, 
to, to something you already were doing or, you know, doing something a few times and recognizing that you might never get good at it. And, and maybe that's okay. It just gives this invitation of embracing this playful apprentice role where it's not about perfection. It's not about even getting a level of, of, you know, proficiency. It's about trying something new and seeing what comes of it. Um, And after that, we have ritualizing, which is sort of, Often I'll think about it as you learn the steps of the dance when you're apprenticing and then ritualizing is once you have, a, you, once you know enough of the steps that you can put it to music and, and really embrace the, the dance. Um, so really bringing a level of intention to a set of activities we talked a little bit already about the ritualizing that we do at the start of our classes with the setting the culture and the ground grounding that we do. Um, but it can be as simple as how I have my morning tea and the way that I engage differently with something that I do every day uh, with a little bit more care. Mm-hmm. It's really quickly, as I was having a conversation with somebody and uh, talking about what else COVID and they lost their, their, their sense of taste and smell for a little while. And the person said um, to the other people in the room, yeah, and I couldn't taste coffee in the morning and almost, you, you almost, it, you know, in unison, everyone was like, oh, <laughs> it's like this thing that we take for granted, which is that for, you know, and I often say, I can tell how the rest of the day is going to go by the first sip of coffee, whether I made it well or not. But it's like that we all recognized in the absence of this thing that we take for granted, the importance of it in the experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That rings especially true because I lost my sense of taste and smell during COVID in October and it was I couldn't taste coffee. It was very weird because it changed my entire morning, right? Mm-hmm. It changed a lot of things, but... <laughs> <laughs> it changed a lot. Mm-hmm. Was, that, was that the worst thing that changed? Um... <laughs> Well, I, I, well, for us, yes. Like the thing is, if, if you had tasted the food that we cooked during then, you would have been like, what is this? This is horrifying. Because we had to put so much spices to actually have any flavor at all. So it changed our ritual, our intention of how we thought about cooking um, to get anything sensation-wise, <laughs> you know? So we didn't share food that week <laughs> for good reason. Oh, yeah. I love this idea. Ritual, I think, is super important too, especially because like we see the, for lack of a better term, with the secularization of the world, um, and especially like with the modern economics, like there's no, there's no like set apart, you know, sacred as like the idea of something that's set apart. And like ritual is one of the things that came over from, you know, obviously itself ritual rites of passage, you know, ways of being human. It could be from religion, spirituality, and like that um, is both sorely needed in, but also when you add the element of ritual intentionally, when you add intention intentionally um, and like having a sequence of events like that, it make it does make such a huge difference. I mean, even though we talked about up top, uh, with how you start Zoom meetings with, you know, internally, but also with classmates too, like having that ritual is about like crossing that threshold, you know, of saying this is actually on purpose. Um, there is a rhyme behind the the reason or reason, whatever it was, you know, there's, there's rhyme in the chaos uh, on purpose, like, and, and like that's adding something to it that um, I don't know if it's not necessarily spiritual, but it's just like, it's not just every day. 
right? I mean, it can be something mm-hmm. you can ritualize something that does like the, the tea example is a great example, something you do every day, but it like sets it apart though, right? From mindlessness, I guess. Maybe it's curiosity with care might be the, the right answer there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think that also points to the next principle, which is gracing, uh, which is in, inviting humor, love, beauty, and ease into your experience, right? So I think ritualizing really allows us to have more of those things and also to not take it so seriously, you know, so it's so often ritual is, is pointed to as this sort of separate sacred, maybe religious or spiritual experience. Um, But I think one of the, one of the ways that we like to engage with curiosity is with a, with a lightness, Right. With like not taking it so seriously. And that's the invitation of gracing is to see the humor in it is to, yeah, I might be really, really curious about this thing and want to just get deep into a research hole with it. But if I can step back and see like, oh, there's something really humorous in this, like I can see beauty or love in this, then it, it allows for a a playfulness that is really core to what we're doing. And that also brings us to the last principle, um, which is flowing, recognizing that everything also flows and comes to an end. Similar to this conversation might also come to an end. So whatever we do um, to do it with intention, take love, beauty, humor, and ease, but also recognizing that, um, you know, there's, there's a moment that it flows away and, and to savor it. Um, yeah. With experience design, the idea of flow is, is really fascinating because in different schools, one might be, you don't want people to move slowly. You want to create friction or you want them to um, have a noticing that's abrupt. So you want to transform the experience in some fundamental way that it becomes highly differentiated from past experiences that they've had, like eating dinner or travel or going to school or whatever it is. But then there's this other element of frictionless and just flow of not thinking about it, of being able to engage it engage with it without having to notice it. But at the same time, as you talked about, noticing is good. And one of the things I talk about with my students is, you know, if we notice everything that goes on in life, then it would be overwhelming, but we want to be able to turn that on. We want to be able to we have the facilities to engage our five senses, to take stock of the mundane that's happening around us, to, um, to make those huh moments of, of identifying or these noticings. But then also be able to, when necessary, to kind of slip back into it and be able to engage in it without noticing. And how much of experience design, I think, and I know you know you all work in this field, is this tension between noticing intention, you know, uh, uh, a wow moment of high noticing versus a seamless moment of flow and. I won't say negatively mindlessness, but just being in the moment versus being noticing the moment. Does that make sense at all? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's the, the, when you were speaking, I was thinking about like a, a meeting can flow and you can lose track of time yet we can end it 
before sort of like the last five minutes just to recognize, oh, we're ending. So we need to take time to end the meeting uh, rather than being in flow, losing track of time. And then sort of like, oh, shit, it's too late. We, we got to hang up. So there's mm-hmm. this like taking the uh, staying in flow, but recognizing key moments um, to pick out. A ritual. A ritual. Yeah. <laughs> The other thing that that's pointing to for me is how it's a cycle, right? That the principles are not actually linear and like, like the flowing and the observing actually go together in a way that, uh, you know, when you're looking at the list, observing's at the top and flowing's at the bottom, it's a, it's not a, it's not a, you start from point A and end at point B or, you know, G or whatever. Um, the, the the principles themselves are a continuous cycle and the sort of seventh non-principle that we've talked about, which actually Pim pointed to in his uh, rowing example right. is rest uh, that really it's important to pause, to be able to have that. I think maybe what you're speaking to Gary, the, the, the moment, the moment to really allow whatever you've just experienced to come through, right? To, right. to let it integrate, to let it settle in, to, to harvest the lessons that you've learned from engaging in a certain experience. And I'm noticing that there's seven steps and the last one is rest. And it sounds, it looks very symbolic. This, on the seventh step, he, re- he, re- he rested. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like the seventh day. <laughs> for those of us who from Catholic school, <laughs> I had to ask, you know, like my Catholic school upbringing was like, oh, I, yeah. on, a, on, the, on the seventh step, we rested. Yeah. <laughs> seventh step curiosity. Yeah. Yeah. Um, also, well, Pim, Monica, we want to thank you so much. This has been such an enlightening and, and fun conversation. It's been really cool to kind of flow, as we might say, between um, kind of so many topics, but getting a sense both in terms of the, the kinds of work that you offer and how you think about the ideas of curiosity. And, and really, like the, I think it's been really invaluable to see the ways that we can pull from so many different arenas um, to kind of integrate and uh, think across like what it means to be open to these spaces and to articulate them. So um, just want to say a huge thanks to, to both of y'all for joining us. It's been really fun. We're excited to share this with listeners um, and, you know, um, happy to share out any resources or other things that, that you want folks to, to hear about. We are happy to, to do that as well. So just huge thanks. Thank you both so much. We want to thank Monica and Pim from Architecting Curiosity for talking with us about how they help clients become curious once again. You can learn more about their work and how to get involved by going over to architectingcuriosity.com. And as well, we'll have the link in our show notes to their websites. So we want to get in conversation with you as always. And so we're curious, <laughs> see what I did there, to understand uh, how you maintain a curious mindset. You know, how and have you seen your own inquiring mind waning? Which is an interesting question to think about. Have you ever noticed that you are less curious than you might have been in the past? And also importantly, what do you serve at a birthday party? We want to know. Shoot us a message over at feedback at experiencexdesign.com or hop in the conversation on our LinkedIn page. And once again, thank you all for helping us hit over 8,000 downloads. We have mm-hmm. some wonderful episodes lined up. Not that the ones we've already done weren't wonderful. They're all wonderful. But the ones that we have lined up, 
are pretty wonderful. Extra wonderful. Extra wonderful, huh? And we're excited to continue to bring them to you. So thank you so much for making Experience by Design part of your podcast listening repertoire. And as always, thank you for your continued support of the podcast. You can, by all means, continue that support through our website where you can buy us a coffee. You can also send us emails with your show ideas, your recommendations, your thoughts, and your curiosities. So head over to experiencexdesign.com. Shoot us a message at feedback at experiencexdesign.com and let's have a conversation. And with that, we want to thank you again. We hope you're all healthy, happy, good, curious, and we hope you will be here for the next experience by design.